When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network for all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs. Be sure to check out farmruralag.com. I'm your host, Wendell Shum, and my guest today is Dr. Deb Stark. Dr. Stark is the former Deputy Minister of the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. During her public service career, she held various senior leadership roles within OMAFRA and the Ministry of the Environment, including serving as Ontario's first Chief Veterinary Officer. She is currently on the boards of the Canadian Agriculture Policy Institute, the University of Guelph, Genome Ontario, and the Ontario Agricultural Hall of Fame Association. She's a member of the newly created organization, 100 Women Who Care, Rural Wellington, and the Golden Triangle Angel Network. Deb, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. I had to take a breath in the middle of that one. It was both long and interesting. <laughs> well, it's, um, it does make it interesting to know what I'm going to be doing every day. That's for sure. Right. Now, you are the former Deputy Minister of OMAFRA, meaning yes. that you are officially retired? I'm officially retired from the uh, Government of Ontario, yes. Right. Doesn't mean that you don't like find things to fill your day. I actually was very clear when I left the public service that it wasn't because I wanted to um, stop doing things. It was because I wanted to do different things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's what retirement means nowadays. Like, it doesn't mean that you quit working. It means that you maybe work at things that you really want to do. I think you have more flexibility to make sure that you're spending your time how you want to spend that, whether that's golfing or volunteering or writing a book or, like me, sitting on some boards and trying to stay connected with agriculture and food. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to talk about a bunch of that stuff. I don't know if we're going to get to everything that is mm -hmm. on my my outline here from Christine because there's a lot of really interesting things but let's try and do it in a bit of a an organized fashion did you grow up on a farm I did what part of the world did you grow up uh southwestern Ontario so grew up on a dairy farm and actually my uh, brother and my nephew still farm uh, near Listowel near Listowel oh yeah. well, I know that area oh sure the Starks near <laughs> Listowel okay see yeah. I'm making connections already there you go it's good stuff and grew up on a farm and like a lot of people on this show wanted to be a vet and went to the University of Guelph. Unlike a lot of people on the show, you actually did become a vet. <laughs> yeah. <I> <laughs> <laughs> and and we don't need like more vets. So I mean it's good that not everybody that wants to be a vet becomes a vet. But it's good that some of you guys decided to become vets. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think the animals appreciate it. It's not <laughs> probably the only do. Yeah. And did you practice as a veterinarian? I did. I did. I practiced uh in a, at that time, a mixed animal practice near Sarnia in a small town called Forest. So oh, there was Forest. Much. I know where Forest is. You yeah. Forest. There you go. Forest. Yeah, it's not sort of, you know, known as being like a big dairy area, but there is livestock down there. Yeah. Um, there was still um, some few more dairy herds there at that time than there are now, of course, because the numbers yeah. have declined significantly. But it was it was a real mixed animal practice, so... You would go in the morning and get your calls, and most of them were dairy and beef and swine, and I tended to stay away from the horse calls because that wasn't <laughs> my interest. 
And then you oh, come I guess so. we're going to get along fine. <laughs> <laughs> a horse broke my nose once when I was in vet school, and that was it. Oh, there you good go. heavens. And Nobody can say that you didn't earn your stripes then. I did. I tried. I gave him the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. But then in the afternoon, you'd come back and do the uh, small animal side of the um, of the clinic, which I enjoyed just as much as the large animal side. And, and then, you know, often you'd find in the evening you might have to go back out again. That's when veterinarians still tended to treat milk fever, still tended to be called for more things than they're called for now. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. And not to be, like, I guess, asking inappropriate questions, but you would have graduated from Guelph in sort of what? The 80s. I'm, I'm in 80s. 82. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in those days, you had to do all of the different jobs sort of at the clinic. Were you, like, how many vets would there have been at your Two. clinic? Two. Two, right. And you both did everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically it. So all species and every night on call. Uh, herd health was just kind of coming in at that time and I was very interested in, in the dairy herd health. My partner was more interested in the swine, so it was pretty complimentary. We yeah, were for sure. just uh, getting our head around the idea that it actually was about food you were producing. So, you know, antibiotic residues and, right. and withdrawals and things like that were, you know, an important important thing. I was actually at the very, very tail end of when people used to have to test their herds for brucellosis, right at the end of yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I, I just remember that. Um, yeah. I grew up on a dairy farm as well. And I remember doing TB testing, and yeah. uh, but then it wasn't, I guess we eradicated that, luckily. Yeah. Now you are very involved in sort of women in agriculture kind of stuff. In the 80s, when you came out as a vet, especially going into a large animal practice, that would have been rather uncommon. It was still a little bit unknown. I was actually in the class it was either my class or the class right behind me where the, where the numbers changed, where there were actually more women in the class than men. Okay. So it was right at that time. I was fortunate for a couple of reasons. I went into a practice and the person who left had been a woman, so she was actually the first woman in the practice. She broke the ice. Um, okay. Because I came from a dairy farm, I could... You know, and, and the 4-H member, and I knew some of these people from, say, 4-H and junior farmers and things like that, mm -hmm. um, because I was also a southwestern Ontario person, so mm -hmm. that was an advantage. And then I, I, you know, you don't know me, Wendell, but I'm I'm pretty tall and solid, so you know, <laughs> I could look down on some of those farmers if they were giving me too much grief and that ended the right. conversation quickly. You definitely could hold your own, sure, good. Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't have a very difficult time, but I, other people did, and I don't want to discount that for a moment and, and continue to. I was actually sure. in Western Canada in the fall talking to the um, bovine practitioner group out there, and they did a panel on women in practice, and they continue to, to struggle with some of these things. Right, yep. which is even today when, like, yep. the largest majority of graduates coming out of all vet schools are women. Absolutely. Yeah, have been now for quite a while. Yeah, and but then most of them wouldn't have a career in, in large animal practice. Well, most veterinarians who graduate at all don't have a career in... Right, doesn't have anything to do with whether they're men or women, exactly. Right. Yeah, but um, proportionally, the women are moving into the food animal um, practice, you know, just about as quickly as the men now. Sure. Because that's where they all are. We have practices in Ontario that are all women. Food animal practices, I should say, that are all women. Women-owned, yep. women-owned. I know a number of vets in our industry that I work with day-to-day -day are women. So, I, yeah, I, I see mm -hmm. evidence of that all around. Mm -hmm. 
And the medicine has changed so much. It's a very different. You don't have to manhandle the animals the same way you used to. So better no, handling no. facilities, yeah. better drugs. Um, as I kind of started by saying, you know, farmers doing a lot more things that they used to call a veterinarian to do, very much changed. A lot more emphasis on, on looking at data and records and providing advice and things like that. Yeah. That's yeah. good not only for for the vets and for the farmers. That's good for the animals, too, like the yeah. better handling practice and all that stuff. Like, we're, uh-huh. we're making advancements that are good all the way all around. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so you practiced at that clinic, and then tell me how you ended up being <laughs> the chief veterinary officer. Yeah, really, eh? Well, I wasn't a grand plan, I guess. Just let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So sometimes, sometimes those are the best stories. Sometimes I think... If you can only look back, you can you can see the pattern. But when you're living it, you can't. But no, exactly. I was I really liked practice, but I was interested in uh, trying to do something else. I decided to get a, a master's in business administration. I wanted to go back to school. I looked at going back into veterinary medicine, and everything looked like I had to get more specialized and more narrow. And this right. is one of those things I've learned over life. I'm I'm more broad. I don't I'm not good at all the little details. So. Specializing didn't seem to really fit. And, right, um, big picture view. Yeah, and the MBA was something that intrigued me. Um, it wasn't something, I was one of the first veterinarians to, to actually get an MBA because it wasn't something that people thought of. But um, I decided to do that, and I found there was a part-time one at uh, Wolford Laurier University, and mm-hmm. there was a part-time job for a veterinarian at Omafra in Guelph. So you picked up and moved from sort of the banana belt of Ontario <laughs> yeah. and came to what would be considered the center of agriculture, which is Guelph. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Certainly the center of like a lot of agricultural programs. Yep, and I thought I would be there for three years. The plan was to okay. get to the MBA and then go and do something still back connected more closely with veterinary medicine. That I had no intention of staying in the government at all. Right, so that was your introduction into sort of policy and government regulation. Yeah, well, they were called extension veterinarians at that time. We don't use that name so much anymore. But it was a position where I worked with private practitioners in the field. So if they, a private veterinarian had a problem with a herd or, or we saw something going on, I would go out or I'd go and give talks. And I found out that I really enjoyed that. I liked right. that. Right, and so your responsibilities in that role were largely oversight then? Advice and uh, recommendations. Yep. You didn't start with OMAF as the chief veterinary officer. That wasn't no, your first no, no, role no. there. I didn't. Position didn't actually exist until sometime in the uh, 2000s, and Ontario didn't have any animal health legislation at that time. All we could provide was advice and um, encouragement, and really recommend that farmers do the right thing. But we didn't have any legal powers to do that. So, right. So then when that role was created, yeah. you were the person to, to step in and shape it and make it what it was to become. I was very fortunate. So it was in, in the 90s, there was a lot of things going on that were getting people really worried. There was SARS going on and the whole question about whether mm-hmm. health capacity there. We'd been through Washington, huge concerns about avian influenza and yeah. what that might do and this real that's when it became clear that unlike all a lot of other provinces um ontario didn't have any legal capacity to to deal with animal health diseases that might be of a significant concern we depended totally on the federal government and the federal government mm-hmm. was very clear about there's only so many things we can do 
and especially since other provinces have the power to do it themselves. So yeah. I was really fortunate. The, the then deputy at the time um, kind of said, pick a couple of people and um, why don't you kind of go quietly into a corner and kind of think this through. And <laughs> there, was this, there was an industry group led by uh, Deb Whale. I don't, I'm sure you know Deb. Yep. Deb mm-hmm. was a major force from the industry side saying, we've got to fix this, we've got to fix this now. I mean, I've never ever been anywhere where the industry was so unified saying we need to be regulated. And when it came to an Animal Health Act for the province, uh, they were all there. The poultry, swine, beef, dairy. So everybody was there saying we need to get these powers and we need, we need our own veterinarian and we need to have the system in place. And so you were really involved in actually writing the outline and mm-hmm. writing what the guidelines that were to become legislation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I guess <laughs> that must have been interesting to say the least, getting all of these different groups, some with maybe competing interests, yep. getting them to all agree on on sort of this framework. And there would have had to have been compromises from some people. And oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. how long did that whole process take? Uh, you know, I'm sorry, you're stretching my memory here, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there was at least a couple years. You know, there was quite a few years when people are saying, we need to have this, and the government of the day, I used to call it uh, number four on the list of top three priorities, because mm-hmm. the elected officials would say, this is important, but not now. This is important, right. but not now. And right. uh, I think it, well, I think it was the Liberal government came in, and when we got into some of the problems... Uh, with concerns about dead stock in the food supply. And uh, that's when they said, no, now's the time. <laughs> so yeah, right. So it simmered in the background for quite a few years. And then once it started to move, it moved fairly quickly. It wasn't, uh, the concept was really, if I recall correctly, it wasn't controversial. All parties kind of agreed this needed to happen. As you say, the questions always come, the devil always lies in the details. Yeah. And how, yeah. who will have what power and what kind of controls will, will be there. And that, that's fair enough. That's how you build legislation. Right. And, and it wasn't really a fair question, you know, because it isn't as if there's some end point where you can say, okay, this is finished. This is the kind of legislation that evolves and changes over time and is still being developed. Oh, absolutely. There's still um, um, powers that um, technically the government of the day could put regulations in place and do more things, and they've chosen not to broad framework around animal health and that is again the way they kind of write legislation these days and say we'll put some we basically put these concepts and say these are the areas that this is going to cover and, and then when the time is right we'll develop the regulations and um, fill in the details. That would have been a role that saw you less involved with producers at a farm level. Is that oh, fair? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I moved away. I moved into management positions this is something that's coming around again. <laughs> I moved into a management position in the early 90s when uh, the ministry had several programs around standards of animal care. And uh, the manager became ill and couldn't continue. And I had just finished this MBA. And quite frankly, everybody else said, oh, we're not going to go near that because that is such a controversial <laughs> thing. Right. <laughs> I was young and dumb, and I said, oh, give this a shot. And, uh, yeah, it was fascinating. The real focus was not so much on farm animals at that time. The real focus was on animals being used in research, and um, specifically the use of uh, dogs in research. 
that's where I learned a lot of my um, media, got my on-the-job media training and, and handling hostile audiences, which, I mean, farmers, may, you may have a, you know, may have a tough crowd, but not when they're, very rarely when they're totally against you. But when we were talking about uh, using animals in research, there were some difficult, difficult meetings. You're either you sit or you're not, right? You're, yeah, exactly. And there'd be probably a lot more people that emotionally are just, you know, yeah. completely against it. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to think about yeah. why it needs to happen, right? Exactly. 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 Yeah. So, well, so you've seen a lot of changes in sort of the, the regulatory landscape. Yeah. And give me just your comments on where we've come and progress that we've made. Like, are you encouraged by all that? I kind of think it had to happen. So I, it was really again in the 90s and early 2000s when I think people got so far disconnected from agriculture, and that's an ongoing thing, where they just didn't have the faith and the confidence anymore. And they started looking to government to then assure us that the, the oversight's happening. So we had our Nutrient Management Act come in. We had the Animal Health Act that uh, we mentioned already. I guess it was a little later, but, you know, in that area, the Food Safety and Quality Act got rewritten and much more strengthened at that time. All this overstart started coming, and I think it's because of that disconnect. And I think it probably was inevitable. It, and it's not gotten any better, right? Our ability to uh, tell agriculture story in a way that make uh, other citizens feel really comfortable when they realize we have you have such a ability to impact the environment and the land and, yep. and care for so many animals under under your own responsibility. It's it's a it's a tough one. That's what makes that. And I think that's one of the things that really that frustrates so many of us in the industry sometimes is that we've come so far down this road. We're the, we're the most regulated food system, yeah. one of the most regulated in the world. It's our food is yeah. the safest anywhere yeah. in the world, and yet consumers are more distrustful than they've ever been. Yeah. I think about that a lot because, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, even three or four years ago, I was really all on the bandwagon of you've got, we've got to listen to consumers and yeah, yeah. talk to them and really take it all in. And I don't know, I'm, uh, it seems to be a losing game. <laughs> Deb, I'm with you a little bit. I've gone through that cycle too of, yeah. you know, all we got to do is we got to get enough people telling the right stories and we just got to, you know, people got to meet a farmer, you know, we just got to bridge yeah. that gap. And then I wonder... are we really making any progress? You know, the thing that's really resonated with me, there's a researcher, and I can't remember what university he's out of, his name's Jason Lusk out of the States, and he basically argues that one of the things we don't get is that there there really isn't isn't one consumer, and people have different needs from their food system, and so trying to bundle it all up into one just doesn't work. And, you know, if you don't have basic nutrition and you don't have enough money to buy baby formula for your baby, your needs are very, very different than if you are trying to promote yourself as some kind of a person and it's part of your personal brand to be eating some kind of a product. And and there's a whole hierarchy in between there. And uh, so one message just doesn't cut it. I think we do get fixated sometimes on meeting somebody and then we launch right into our you know, our elevator pitch, you know, that's a, an angel investor kind of a uh, thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, exactly. And then, but we don't take the time to stop and ask questions and listen to what's important. Yeah. And, you know, I think when, the, when people really kind of come down to it, people do have some kind of real concerns, but a lot of people just, it, they just want to feel like they're putting some healthy, nutritious food that they can afford and that on the table at the end of the day, a busy day, 
And uh, yeah. that's really what a majority of them are looking for. Before we solve, yeah, we're solving the world's problems here, but as the chief veterinary officer, so that is not an elected position. Correct. And then neither is the deputy minister of agriculture. Is that, that's do I got correct. that right? That's correct. Right. So you would be in the bureaucratic level mm-hmm. of government that is mm-hmm. not elected, but actually gets the stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it said that that the people with the power in government, you got the elected officials, you know, they're the mm-hmm. ones sort of, they're the face and, and they're when election cycles come around, then they're the ones that have to get voted back in. Yep. But the real people that do the work, they don't change from government to government. They, they're the ones that make sure the programs keep running. You're right. So we're, the bureaucracy is, like, you know, as long as they don't screw up, you know, you're, you're, you just keep doing the job. And, and so have a lot of uh, ability to influence how programs run, for sure. Which is a good thing. I mean, how big of a shift is it when, when you're in that kind of a role and all of a sudden we have an election and, and now you've got a new boss? It can be huge. So- <laughs> I bet. Obviously, I left before the current uh, change in government, uh, but I was through a few of them, not at the deputy level, but a few of them in the past. And it it is understanding, well, again, it's all about communications. It's all about building relationships Mm -hmm. so that these people will trust you and listen to you and hopefully, you know, at least seriously consider your advice, if not taking your advice. And that is really understanding where their head is at. So it's simple things like, changing the words and uh this was a phrase that was the pet phrase of the previous government well you better not be using it in front of the in front of the current government <laughs> right i suppose and, they're a little touchy about that sort of thing yeah no it, it, i say it's those kind of things that would often get you and um so when did you become the the deputy minister of ag who was minister at the time it was ted mcmeekin so it was right at the time Dalton McGinty was still the premier. Ted McMeekin was the minister, and I became the deputy. And I think it was like two weeks later there was a leadership race, and um, <laughs> yeah, and yes, Miss um, Wynn became the premier. And if you'll recall, she also said for her first year she was going to be the minister of agriculture. So okay, she <laughs> became the minister, and they split up the the carved the rural piece off. And so yep. we had uh, Jeff Leo was um, the Minister of Rural Affairs, and I was his deputy, and Kathleen Wynn was the Minister of Agriculture, as well as being Premier, and I was her deputy as well. Okay. Yeah. So let's see. How do I put this delicately? Not our most popular Premier in terms of, you know, Ontario farmers. Um, Not you had to work end. with her. Not at the end. You forget the beginning. No. Okay. Well, no, we, we tend to do that. You're right. Yes. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. There was love in at the beginning. <laughs> she made a lot of promises. Everybody was optimistic, you know. It's, it's, is that always the way with, with somebody new in there, you know, fresh start? Yep, I think so. I think so. I mean, well, again, these are the elected people for four years. Uh, so you assume you're going to need to still have the minority at that time. But anyway, you assume you're going to need to work with them. So you know, people are always trying to get on the right side. But she, at that time, came across as, I'm here because I think agriculture is important. And agriculture was just over the moon that a premier thought that agriculture was important. And then she came out with this, I want to learn more, I want to understand, I want to listen. And so, yeah, at the beginning, it was not difficult at all. 
No. And, and politics is a thankless job. No question. And if you're a politician and you leave office as a, a popular person, well, I mean, you maybe probably did something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't see that very often. Yeah, yeah. So then as the person who's actually implementing stuff, are you sort of the buffer between the angry public and the minister? Uh, can be for sure. For sure. Certainly the groups that are coming in and they want to have done or they want to have something stopped. And they, one of the, one of the chief roles of the, at the deputy level is to try and kind of explain government policy and what the thinking is and, you know, why and try and make sure it's well understood. And then also convey back into the, into the political side, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of this concern. <laughs> it's definitely right. now though, I mean, with social media and things like that, yeah. you yeah. don't have to do, they, they know. <laughs> Yeah, for, yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine it's impossible for them not to know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I would imagine there's days where you probably wondered, you know, like how you got yourself into this. But at the end, when you retired in 2016, which isn't that long ago, it must be rewarding and satisfying to look back at some of the things that you accomplished. I didn't ever ever think I would ever. I didn't ever want to be deputy minister. I sure didn't think I would be deputy <laughs> minister. So, I mean, it was a ride. It was a ride. And I, I say to anyone, like, public service was very good to me. I worked with yeah. really good people. I had it. Every time, I, there were about three times during my career, I seriously thought about leaving. And every time there was something so interesting kind of in front of me, I said, no, I'm just going to stay and do that. So, I mean... Geez, how can you? And then you wake up one day and it's been thirty years. I mean, right? Exactly. Exactly. These these little these little projects and goals turn yeah. into a career eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Very cool. You must have seen lots of of interesting things. And you worked for a female premier, mm-hmm. and you've seen like a lot of change in terms of like women in some of those roles. And mm-hmm. you are actively involved in women in ag now. Mm-hmm. I guess, did you fall into that as well? Or was that something that you made a conscious decision that you really wanted to focus on? No, I'm ashamed to admit that I fell into that as well. <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> and and it was because of the Advancing Women Conference. So okay. the, the conference that goes on in Western Canada and Eastern Canada, and it came to Eastern Canada for the first time, I think I'm going to say 2015. Okay. And a female deputy colleague at West said, you know, I don't have any use for, you know, this kind of woman stuff, but I kind of agreed to go and talk. And it was really something, and I would really encourage you, Deb, to, you should look at it. And I said, oh, well, that's not kind of my thing. It really is a really comment on on a lot of my generation that we were pretty complacent, I think. So anyway, I I reached out to the group that was coming to Ontario, Iris Mac, and and not only said, could you come and would you actually speak? And so, oh, well, so then I had to kind of do some research. And then you start getting right. into it. And then you find out, my goodness, you know, there are still incredible uh, gaps in terms of representation at senior levels and pay gaps. And, and people do experience harassment on a daily basis. And, like, that's just crazy in a civilized, mature country like Canada that those things would be happening. So Ag Women's Network was kind of starting to really shine at that point in time and and they it was just a pleasure to kind of to meet Jen Christie and some of that group and see what they were trying to do and yeah the rest is history are we making progress there I guess this is where you know am I sort of one of the old white guys that has benefited from 
this gender inequality over the years. So when I ask these questions, I almost I almost don't feel like it's my place to even ask the question, but are we making progress? Like, is this stuff helping? So I don't think you need to apologize for asking the questions. And I'll, I'll say, whereas you may have a double one for kind of being the white male, just being white, <laughs> just being white in this country means, right. you know, we have privilege. So I'm right there with, and my age, you know, I'm right there with you. <laughs> Okay. We both well, right. from a position of, of privilege that maybe we took for granted for a long, long time. I think it's uh, two steps forward, one step back, for sure. I think mm-hmm. there is yep. progress. I think, you know, the what really, um, I think what's really changed things a lot it, is the huge need for labor, quite frankly, and mm-hmm. the profession that's going on in agriculture. And I don't know if it would be the same if there were still lots of men that could be hired, quite frankly. I don't know, but there aren't. And we need everybody able to contribute um, because of our demographics and what's happening to us, not just in agriculture, but in the country in general. And so that's um, made doors open that may or may not have opened. And Deb, for me, I had a real eye-opener moment. I had You mentioned Jen Christie. I had Jen Christie and... And Adrian Ivey from Western Canada were on the podcast to talk about this issue. And from that, I, I heard stories from people that I've known, and I didn't realize some of the stuff that was still going on. And then I also had to take a real look at myself. Yeah. And so, okay, what what am I doing on a day-to-day basis that I don't even realize that, you know, to me is not a big deal, but could be interpreted and, and could be skewing the way that, that other people yeah. are, are interacting. and. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I had that eye opener, you yeah. know, like yeah. to say that I'm a different person is, you know, that would be a, a bit of a stretch. Like, it wasn't as if I was doing anything overtly, you know, sexist or misogynistic or anything like that. And yet, you know, just thinking about, well, how is this going to make somebody else feel? And is this, could this situation better just based on the venue that we're having it in? You know, like those kind of things, again, I never, they I never occurred to me because I, I never had to deal with them. Exactly. And as long as we're all still learning and growing, I think that's, I think that's the point. And yeah, yeah, exactly. We have just now waded into territory that has mostly been off limits. I anything that could be controversial or get me in hot water, I usually stay away from. But oh. there we go. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think good for you for going there. I don't know. I, I people shouldn't be afraid to learn and grow. No, I suppose, and, and the very fact that you know these having these conversations still does make me uncomfortable probably means I still do have more room to grow on this. Yeah, we all do. I, um, I mean, one of the advantages in, in being in government is I was um, exposed to a lot of diversity training, and um, mm-hmm. and it and it has really changed over the years too, just our attitude and approach to that. But um, it's good in the end. <laughs> like it's like yeah. you know, if it's not if it's not a little bit uncomfortable, then you're probably not actually changing. You know? Yeah. I don't care. Exactly. I don't care what where what you're trying to learn or what you're trying to do. It, you need to be a little bit uncomfortable, or you're not learning and you're not growing. And you're in a position where you can now be a role model for people. And I, you know, you, you've had a successful career doing a lot of really interesting things, and you can can help the next generation come along. You're a mentor for. The is it the women in agriculture group? I was part of their first year mentor program last year, so that was an eight month program, and uh, I was really pleased to when they were looking for mentors. To, I was really pleased that they 
that uh, I could participate, and it was a great experience. But they've got another round on now, and they've not they've got another group of mentors and mentees actively participating now. I've heard great things about that program. Yeah, just making the connections. Part of it is just seeing that there's someone else who looks like you and sounds like you in the room and gives you confidence. It's one of those things that I really seen in action and I, I didn't ever believe it before, but I believe it now when they talk about like in groups and on boards and things, you yep. need three. And when you have three that are thinking alike, and th- this, this is about whether or not it's three women or three people of the same opinion or something, that's when you can move things forward. If there's only one, it doesn't move. That won't actually have change. You, you, need, you need those other people to look there. So we got down that rabbit hole. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I told you we wouldn't know where this was all going to go until yeah, we actually went there. So. <laughs> exactly right. Given your your broad range of experience and, and all of the different roles that you've had, what would you tell somebody that's just getting into agriculture? Well, I would say they've made uh, a good move to go into ag- the agriculture or the food side. That it's an amazing uh, world that you can do almost anything in, no matter what your natural skills and interests are. It is not all about being on the farm. It can be interested in finance, interested in technology, interested in social issues, art, creativity. I mean, there's room for all of that. I would say that it is um, someplace that you can just keep your eyes open and keep grabbing the opportunities. But that's not unique to agriculture. I'd say that to any young person. You need to know who you are and what you are interested in. And I think it's back to the conversation you and I had a few minutes ago about uh, the Golden Triangle um, investors. And you kind of said, I kind of found out that's not actually my space. <laughs> so right, right. you, you need to know yourself. Exactly. We did that before we were, were recording. So we were just talking about, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're a member of the Gold Triangle Angel Network. I was in the past for a few years, which is a group that, invests in early stage tech companies. So, you know, really smart kids coming out of university that have an idea and then it's giving them money to get that going. And for me, I specifically did it to try and do something that was different from agriculture. And it was in doing that, that I realized how much I enjoyed being in agriculture and fit there. And I think, yeah, you got to know who you are. That's a really an important point. Yeah. That's something you know, that it takes some time to figure some of that stuff out. I didn't I, I didn't maybe realize that until I was a good part of the way through my career. Well, I, I that's what I was going to say, too. It, it takes some time, and you have to be open to new experiences. And um, because the downside of saying I know myself is sometimes you close the door too quickly and say that's not for me. That's right. Keeping an open mind. Yeah. You tried yeah. it, right? And you tried it and said, no, I've learned, and that, you know, I, I, I'm where I need to be. Yeah. Don't be afraid to try things. I always, again, looking back, I, when I moved versus when I didn't move, even in the government, I, I kind of had two criteria. And one was, was, was I going to learn something? And the second one was whether or not I thought I was going to be able to help. And when I had both of those, I thought, yep, this is a place to give it a try. And it, it took me into some wild places <laughs> over the 30 years. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. Good. But that, that was kind of my little mental checklist that took a while to get. You know, one thing that sometimes I worry about in agriculture or or any place where someone really defines themselves really narrowly, you know, like I am a farmer, Mm -hmm. sometimes it just does not, doesn't unfold that way. And I always worry about those people if they aren't able to fulfill that 
got to have some flexibility in, yep. in your thinking to find yourself a bit exactly. more Exactly. You, you have to be committed to something and you can't be flaky about it, yeah. but you also can't be so committed to it that you're not open to new things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah some great life lessons. Deb, this has been a lot of fun. We didn't cover nearly all the stuff that we were supposed to cover in our outline, so I feel badly about that. But uh, on the bright side, that means that we'll have you back at some point here and and we'll have lots of new stuff to talk about as well. Okay, that's a deal. (laughs) Very good. I really appreciate the time and uh, have enjoyed it a bunch. Well, thank you so much. Take care. This has been the Ontario iCast. The Ontario iCast is produced by Christine Schoonerwood and is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Egg Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmrollag.com. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.